Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. I'm here today with Keith Butler, who is a member of the city's Historic Landmarks Commission, and he's also vice president of marketing for a company called Vices. And um, I'm looking forward to talking to him because as a journalist, I love all of the discussion that happens at the design review boards, all the debates over housing. And Keith is a really interesting guy because he's elected at large. So he brings a really interesting, cool, unique perspective that doesn't come from that architectural perspective. So I'm looking forward to talking to you. Uh, Keith, how are, how are you doing today? Great, Josh. It's good to meet you uh, virtually this way. I know we've sort of swapped on Twitter, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but I appreciate the time to uh, to meet with you and share some thoughts. Yeah, well, you know, I cover these design review boards. I cover the city council. And um, I really enjoy watching you because, one, you're, you're very quotable. You say things that are authentic and make a lot of sense. And so as a journalist, I'm looking for those those moments of clarity, those moments of direct commentary. So I appreciate you taking time to talk a little bit about your views and your background. And we're going to get into politics, too. I know on Twitter you're very active with your um, anti-Trump comments. And, and uh, you know, that's really good to see because you've got some really strong views and you will say them. So we'll talk about that in a second. But first of all, Keith, you're on the HLC. You're an at-large member Let's jump right in and talk about housing. Housing is an issue that we see everywhere. It comes up at ABR, HLC, Planning Commission, obviously City Council. Um, what's your sort of perspective on how Santa Barbara right now is dealing, wrestling, grappling with this housing issue? We have all these state pressures, state demands. Right. You know we're in a housing crisis, but yet we do have this tremendous community that we're trying to protect. So. What's your stand on Santa Barbara and how it's handling the housing situation? Well, the housing situation in Santa Barbara is not new, first of all. I grew up here. I remember many years ago that housing was always tight, was always difficult. And we're primarily talking about rental housing. Yeah. You know, that's that's the real concern. I think today the latest data says that the housing rental vacancy rates around 2%, which is abysmally low. But housing has always been a challenge. But what has really changed is the cost of rental housing. Mm -hmm. I rented as a young college graduate student from UCSB renting downtown. And uh, it was always a challenge to find a place. But today, it's really more a question of as difficult it is to find something. It's also difficult to afford something. Mm -hmm. I think Santa Barbara has been pretty aggressive in its uh, abilities to sort of manage somewhat to address housing, but I think the data shows that since 2012, we've only built around 500 roughly new housing units, right? right? So that's really not sufficient. And we have a very strange market here regarding new home development, rental units and housing, obviously because of the price of construction and new, new development. Uh, so we're in a tough spot. And then secondly, as you already mentioned, Josh, the state of California is now regulating and has come down quite strictly on uh, requirements that by county, each county, each city is now being required to build a certain number of new rental units in particular. And I think for the county of Santa Barbara, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think it's something like 4,000 units, which is for us is a town of what, 90,000 or et cetera. That seems like a, a a lot. That's that's tough. 
On the other hand, um, we are being pressured by the state to meet those requirements. Now on a um, organizational basis, we have the Santa Barbara Housing Authority. The ARB is very, very involved in new housing development. The HLC that I serve on, a little less so that we in our charter are not designed to address housing per se, and I can share what the HLC is really chartered to do, but housing out of our is really out of our governance. On the other hand, it comes up every time we have a new applicant that wants to do a new development or expanded moments like, you know, is this enough? How is this going to work, et cetera, et cetera. So the housing problem has um, also been exacerbated by the resistance to high density construction. Yeah. We have uh, a lot of issues around preserving views, preserving access. And so for years, there's been a real push against what we think of as high density construction. And we have uh, height requirements, 60 feet, no, not, you know, not to exceed, uh, et cetera. That has put a real uh, challenge to, to housing, uh, especially as it pertains to renting. So I think it's going to be an ongoing situation for some time. I have a, a daughter who lives here in Santa Barbara. She's a school teacher. The challenge for her, she does rent, but the cost of renting is so high and so prohibitive that it it, it really puts a stress financially uh, on not just her, obviously, but a lot of people. So, you know, I mean, with the new uh, ADU adoption, so you can build auxiliary dwelling units has started to remove some of that pressure, but housing is going to be a continuing challenge for some time. Exactly. Well said. HLC is in charge of, I guess, projects within the El Pueblo Viejo district. We do see housing projects that come to you that are within that district. I'm thinking of the Jiffy Loop, the project that's proposed yeah. for the Jiffy Loop site. I think you had a great quote, like, this will never be built in Santa Barbara, at least that initial proposal, what they brought was this huge box, you know, stall. I think I called it a monstrosity, I think <laughs> it was the quote. And I think I quoted you calling it yes, a monstrosity. Yes, I got into a lot of trouble over that. Thanks a lot, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so that you do see housing. So, so let's talk a little bit about what is the HLC designed to do primarily and then what are some of the housing projects that, that you see and what considerations do you make? Are you trying to protect Santa Barbara? We always hear people, not always, but some people criticize the design review boards for, for stifling housing. So let's talk a little bit about that. Right. Well, the HLC came out of a state legislative act in 1959 that allowed cities to establish these sort of commissions. As the name implies with Historic Landmark Commission, we are chartered to essentially address both existing and new construction, both residential and commercial within certain regions within the city of Santa Barbara. So it's city specific, first of all. And the HLC really, what we do is we provide recommendations to the city mm. that addresses in one since the external design. So the first thing to think about it is design. Secondly, is the scope and scale of the project. And that Jiffy Lube project is one example where the scale was uh, out of scope is what we thought. And to provide guidance to local architects and developers, et cetera, in how to somewhat comply or, or support what we see as sort of the mission style 
uh, and other similar styles of architecture within the city. As you know well, Josh, 1925 devastated Santa Barbara, devastated the city. The good news was it gave Santa Barbara with Pearl Chase and others the opportunity to design a new city. There's a wonderful book I'd encourage your uh, viewers to see if they can find it, Chaucer's. It's called the El Pueblo Viejo. It's put out by the Santa Barbara Conservancy. Basically shows all the new construction by building and street address that evolved out of that 1925 earthquake, the thoughts of the architecture around that, et cetera. Now the HLC is, uh, in a, in a position where it can be a challenge, where somebody comes in with a project that maybe they want to put in a new design, modern architecture, Bauhaus, or something else that doesn't really fit in with what we think of as the, you know, the more traditional Spanish style architecture or whatever. The, on the other extreme, there are, are uh, some properties in the city that take that Spanish architectural style and move it in a whole other new creative direction, and it becomes quite distinctive and unique. So the commission really looks at how can we support the developer and the creator to try to work within what I think was the boundaries of freedom. You can do anything you want within the boundaries, yeah. right? Anything you want, the boundaries of freedom. But if you step outside of those, then it's our, our sort of role to try to help and guide and direct. We do have a, a fairly rigorous process the one project that you brought up was where the Jiffy Lube station is now that's being presented as a, a new housing project. The applicant came to us with what we call a concept review. Mm. So what they've done is present some elevations and drawings and designs and said, look at, we're thinking of this. Yeah. And so it becomes a real interactive process, which helps us, helps them. And in that particular case, I said, whoa, this is you know, this is a horrendously big overscale out of, you know, this doesn't work, period. Yeah. But okay, so they can take that guidance and come back and say, hey, and then it moves through the application process, then they may go off to the ARB or the planning commission or whatever. So first of all, we're not the exclusive arbiters of governance over that. But we do try to find direction and support. We also support um, historic designation. So very often someone, uh, an applicant will come and say they have a house that was built in 1923 on Bath Street. And it's a beautiful, you know, Georgian Victorian architecture. And they want it recognized and designated as historical. And so we don't go in and say, hey, well, no, you got to make it Spanish style or whatever. Mm -hmm. We look at that objectively and say, does that look like it's original? We have a wonderful, the city of Santa Barbara is a wonderful uh, architectural historian who does all the background analysis and looks, and then there are certain criteria that it have to meet. So we do support historical uh, designation of homes and residences as well, again, within that footprint that, that we support. Yeah, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of responsibility. And I'm glad you explained that concept review because it's really an opportunity for the architect and developer to say, here's what we're thinking. Tell us now so we don't get far in the process and then be told this is terrible. So you'd rather learn it's a monstrosity and a concept review than later on at the planning commission or something. So, so that's good. And I wanted to sort of ask you just sort of point, you know, bluntly, like, are you for housing? Are you against housing? Are you for thoughtful housing? There's a perception by, some people that people who are on the design review boards are anti-housing, you know, what's, what's your perspective? So um, 
the again, it doesn't fall within the direct scope or the charter of the HLC, but we talk about housing a lot. Yeah. The other consideration is we get a lot of new applicants for hotels. Oh, yeah. Major additions to existing hotels or new hotels. And it's a challenge for us as board members or commission members to say, look at, do we really need another hotel? Or secondly, and we've asked the applicants on one more than one occasion, what will you do to support housing for the employees that you will need to recruit and hire to work in this new hotel, right? Uh, again, those are still sort of out of our governance, but we like to trigger those kinds of thoughts and thinking before they go to the ARB or the planning commission or whatever. So I would say we're very, very conscious of housing and, and our housing advocates as much as we can be. The other consideration, of course, is infrastructure, water, utilities, sewage, et cetera. Even despite the recent uh, wonderful rain winter that we had here in Santa Barbara, thank goodness, right? Um, it still is a challenge. You know, if you want to build a 20 unit rental unit, you need parking. You need, do you need parking? Do you get parking? Should parking apply, et cetera? So uh, on, on a personal basis, as well as on a, on a commission basis, I think we're very invested in uh, helping what we can do to move uh, the addition of housing forward in Santa Barbara. Okay, uh, let's let's keep going and talk about a couple of specific areas within El Pueblo Viejo. Obviously, during the pandemic, the city famously closed the street to cars overnight, uh, whatever it was, 13 blocks or something. And ever since then, we're still talking about the State Street promenade, right. the outdoor dining, the look of it. HLC was not consulted initially right. when it came time to allow these outdoor dining and the parklets. And then eventually HLC got a look at it. I think it might've been this year. <laughs> I think right. it was just very recent. What is your take on the State Street Promenade from a HLC perspective? Because there's a lot of views and, and, and a lot of people hate it. A lot of people love it. Um, what's your take on what it feels and looks like today? Well, to their credit, the city has set up, as you know, the State Street Association. They brought in outside consultants. Uh, they've held numerous public forums, which are good to get feedback. And they presented to the HLC their sort of initial concepts. I think there's a meeting later this month, in fact, a public meeting. And let me just add, Josh, so everybody knows that everything we're talking about in these commission meetings are open to the public and are and by law. And the public is free to attend, watch the videos. They're on the city's website, et cetera. So anything we're talking about today is actually open and been in public disclosure, just as a point of detail. So we have we have heard from the State Street Association a couple of times, and I know there's more presentations coming up. On a personal basis, I always thought that State Street was perfectly positioned to become a pedestrian uh, exclusive pathway. The reason I say that, because the side streets from Chapala and, and um, Anacapa, et cetera, as one way, large parking facilities on those side streets, et cetera, made a natural throughway and causeway that if you did want to set off State Street or portions of it as a, as a pedestrian only sort of causeway, which is very common elsewhere. Um, you know, if you, I've been in Amsterdam more than once where they've done that successfully. There's other cities within the states. Uh, so, but it's a challenge. And I think 
the consequence of COVID forced everything to move much faster than maybe most of us would have preferred. And the poor restaurants and other businesses that suddenly you couldn't sit inside, right? What do yeah. I do? And here's a street not being used exactly. So it made a lot of sense to move that business outdoors. Unfortunately, we have the weather and the conditions to support that. Yeah. So it's controversial. The city, I think, has done a pretty good job of getting community involvement and participation and support. Uh, me personally, I'm an advocate that we do and proceed smartly with that. There's mm -hmm. a lot of good, uh, I think, uh, ideas and concepts behind that. Um, so we'll see. But I would encourage the public to participate. One of the things that attracted me to joining the commission was I think citizenship requires participation and involvement. We're all American citizens. We all have, uh, we all should vote. We all should participate, et cetera. Little did I know when I joined the HLC, we would have the State Street situation, the De La Guerra Plaza, which we may talk about, come up two of the largest sort of uh, citywide projects in, since the earthquake, really. These are enormous considerations. Um, so I think that uh, given time, and time is not always on our side, but uh, we'll see how this goes. Now, I know that this question is not within the purview of HLC, but as somebody who's super knowledgeable on these issues, I wrote recently about this fracas over outdoor dining fees and how yeah. originally it was going to be $5 and then $3.50 and then 3 and then eventually settled on $2 flat fee a square foot. Do you have any thoughts, Keith, on whether these restaurants should be able to pay, should be paying for the outdoor space that they're using and you know, it should be free, like some of the other council members suggested. Uh, what's your take on that? Because that's there is a little bit of a nexus of, of you know, obviously the more they have to pay for, maybe there's less of that in the street, which affects the aesthetics of downtown. But what do you think of that whole fee situation? Well, it was it was a fracas. I like the use of that term. Mm -hmm. And you're right. It started at five dollars a square, and and there was a lot of discussion. Oh, then that'll either that where they'll pay up or they'll shut down the you know, they'll remove the parklets, et cetera. And, um, you know, there has also been discussion that there's a lot of, uh, shall we call it trash or mis sort of, you know, um, undesirable sort of stuff going underneath the parklets, et cetera. And I would drive that back to that there hasn't been any really direction consistently as to what constitutes a parklet, what can a parklet be, some of the restaurants have put significant in, uh, investment in their parklets, no question about it, mm -hmm. and others have not, you know. So without having any real guidance, you know, I, I can't fault those that said, hey, wait a minute, I don't want to pay five bucks a square for, or even $2 a square. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the city needs to be able to, you know, get in there and pay and or get in there and clean up, et cetera. It will change with time and it will, I think at some point, um, we've done uh, several reviews of just what other cities have done, how they've approached, call them parklets or outdoor dining configurations, et cetera. And, you know, what we see today is it's sort of a kludge because the street still exists. So you have gutters, you have sidewalks and all of that. Uh, in other cities, some other cities, what they've done is elevated the street level and made it all one level plane mm -hmm. and then changed that changes the whole dynamic that changes the whole structure. So um, I think that covering the cost that the city incurs 
trying to do the maintenance needs to be addressed. That revenue or that has to come from somewhere. I do sympathize with those businesses that say, you know, we don't really feel that we can afford that. On the other hand, and this may be, this is controversial too. Now that we have indoor dining, those parklets are additional revenue to the restaurant, right? So yeah. now I have 20 tables inside and I've got 10 tables that I didn't used to have. I have them outside. So it feels that, you know, there should be some, some working there. I thought, you know, I don't, I'm not in the restaurant industry, so I don't know what $2 a square really does in terms of uh, a cost, but um, it doesn't seem unreasonable at this change. I think that will change over time. Yeah. So let's move, uh, I guess, what, depending on what part of State Street, we'll move up State Street to the 700 block in Delaguerra Plaza. Mm -hmm. This seems to be taking a long time. We've been talking about what to do with Lacombe, with um, Delaguerra Plaza forever grass no grass evened it out splash pad bubbler water feature arcades all sorts of different features that have been considered and this is within el pueblo viejo and, right. and it is the hlc and you know you have some of the historians like the lanny evansteins of the world saying we can't change this too much um, it's part of our history and then you got some of the Maybe the newer generation of council members and activists sort of saying it should be like a town square, place that brings families down. Everybody has a purpose coming downtown. As we know right now, it's it's um, a hangout for unhoused individuals. Uh, uh, not totally, but there's a few people who kind of hang out there. And uh, it's a parking area for people going to those various businesses and city hall. Certainly an underutilized space. So what, what do you want to do with, with Delaguerra Plaza? Well, you're right in that this has been going on for decades, <laughs> literally. I think it's been going on longer than I am old. I'll tell you, it's <laughs> it goes back a long ways. Um, and it is a challenge, and it is a community hotspot. I mean, uh, it's it's a project that attracts, attracts enormous amount of community attention, and rightfully so, it should. Uh, I have always, uh, during Fiesta, I love the Mercado there. I go there because I there's a couple of stands there that I love for their tacos, etc. So I'm very familiar with it. And it does fall in the El Paseo uh, or Viejo uh, district that we govern. So uh, we have tried to be very sensitive. It's governed by the city. And another curve got thrown in. You pro I know you know that uh, Wendy McCaw has vacated the news press building. Right. Uh, at the end, which is a magnanimous building. That building is just a wonderful uh, historic building. It's enormous. And so I worked there for seven years. Yes, I know, Josh. I, <laughs> I had the news press as a client for a while. And, you know, I've been in that building many times. It's a wonderful building. Now it's empty and it's huge. So, so what's the opportunity there? Will Ms. McCaw do something with the building or the, you know, whatever? that could even further add to the discussion about the uh, De La Guerra Plaza. My view is to uh, convert it into more reflective of uh, what's across the street, you know, uh, in the, that whole Presidio district, I'm, I'm an advocate of more of a hardscape approach mm. um, rather than preserving the grass, which I know is controversial. I understand that. Um, uh, there's some additions like the arcade, et cetera, which we have debated and sent the city back to review a number of times. But I think making it more 
as part of this, reflect the Spanish style and Spanish heritage that's across the street and extend it. So it more connects into that part of, of the, the, this downtown area uh, is what we need to do. I came out pretty hard against the bubble. I just thought this whole, this is the water feature that, you know, I'm not sure that that's really in, in context of what's required. Right. But but it needs to, you're right, I go there a lot. And it's so often, it's empty, it's unattended. And if you went there today, there's the grassy areas, sort of, you know, the rains have allowed the grass to grow, and there's large weeds on one end. And, you know, it, it just looks unattended. The other part of that is the development around City Hall, you know, the City Hall building. Yeah. And the city has come to us with recommendations around that. And there's some very nice uh, design considerations for what they want to do to kind of open up uh, access to the city hall as well, which I, I would encourage. So I'm of the view that trying to move this, get this thing done, let's move it forward and let's move to more, what looks like a more uh, European style uh, plaza uh, would be the right step. Yeah. Okay. And where are we at with that? I feel like it just is bouncing around to various meeting groups, but I mean, is there a decision that's coming up anytime soon? So the last review, when it was presented to us, we sent them back. This is the city of Santa Barbara I'm referring to. The They're the applicant, okay? And so we sent them back uh, some ideas that we had, some changes, et cetera. And uh, they, I, I don't know how soon, but there's another uh, presentation coming up in the not-too-distant future. All of this will be announced to the public um, in the not-too-distant future to sort of present those updates. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I suspect that it has it's, it's such a challenge to try to accommodate the divergent interests that we, it will still be some time. I mean, even if we all came to agreement and said, let's let's do it this way, whatever this way is, just the development and raising the money and all that's going to take take quite some time. Exactly. I, I want to move on to your social media presence in a second, but I want to just ask you about design review boards. I uh, talked a lot about this. I've asked um, various design review board members who've been on my show about this, but, you know, a few months ago, Doss Williams kind of criticized planners. He criticized design review boards. He said they were obstacles to housing and that they, they are sort of stuck in time because their their uh, planners are, are idealistic, and, and and the design review boards stifle housing because there's so much concern about aesthetics. And I know it upset a lot of people that he phrased it that way. And there's a narrative going on; it's continuing among certain housing activists that we need to look at the role of all of these boards because they're not necessarily housing first people. Um, can you just comment on, on, like, very just directly, why are design review boards important in Santa Barbara from your perspective? If we if we decided to say, you know, we don't need the HLC for whatever reason, um, you know, why, why would that be bad? Why do we need these design review boards? That's a great question. And thanks, Doss. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so... I think Santa Barbara, one of the things that appealed to me living here and then coming involved with the HLC was that Santa Barbara is truly a distinct city 
in the architecture and the and the presence that we have as a city. And as I mentioned, you know, as a consequence of the earthquake, uh, we really built this downtown area with some sort of uh, design concept in mind. That's kind of unique to California. In fact, in most cities, it's very unique. So, and I'm not here to defend the uniqueness of Santa Barbara. And I would agree that there is a conflict at times between housing and, and call it preservation or whatever. We at the HALC, again, we don't govern housing, so we don't, that's not our charter. We try to be very sensitive to it and advocate for it where possible. But with Santa Barbara in particular, the preservation of what we have and even the restoration of what we have makes us very, very unique. Um, so I think it's important. I think it's important for Santa Barbara, particularly. Uh, it has, I, I mentioned, I, I actually grew up in, in Santa Maria and I watched construction go up all over the, you know, one building bearing no resemblance to the other. Uh, you know, the oldest building in town was the McDonald's out on Upper Broadway or whatever. So there was no continuity, no sense of, of heritage and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, but it is a conflict. We, not a conflict, but it's a challenge. We try to be very conscious of that yeah. and not to restrict what we, how we guide things. As I mentioned, and we talked about this, I'm the at-large person. So I'm not an architect, right? And so I try to think of it more as how to accelerate the process. Are we being too picky unish over, well, we want the windows to be made out of this material or you can't go forward. Right. Or we want the signs to be made out of cast iron and not whatever. And is that going to hold up? But even in recent uh, applications, I saw some of the other uh, members of the board say, look, it, we don't want to hold this up. This applicant has a great project. It's 90% terrific. And we're, we're going to say, hey, this other 10%, we recommend you make these changes, but we're not going to hold you up. We want you to move forward. Go ahead, go to the next level of approval or whatever, and try to try to move things forward. So let's transition a little bit to another place that I kind of follow you. You know, I see you on uh, the HLC, but on social media, on Twitter, um, you're pretty vocal. You respond to some of the commentary out there related to conservative politics and certainly former President Trump. And recently you've been pretty active just sort of talking about all the things he's been convicted of. And he's been, you know, he's, he's, he's sort of, uh, you know, been, he's a, he's been arrested now and he's been charged with these and he's paid off people and all of these things. And you sort of outline them in the commentary of anyone who kind of mentions Trump. So can you talk a little bit about that part of you? Um, are you, a, um, you know, are you, are you political nature, you know, uh, uh, why are you on social media sort of wanting to be part of that conversation? Sure. Well, my college education was political science and I've been uh, politically a political participant all my life. I vote in every election, you know, I follow, uh, policies. I'm not a policy wonk per se, but I do play, uh, uh, pay very close attention to uh, what's going on. I'm a staunch uh, Democrat with a small D, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and I also uh, was, as a young lad, was raised in a very dogmatic environment and sort of as my education informed me, et cetera, moved away from that to becoming less 
dogmatic based into more what I would describe as critical thinking and fact and evidentiary based. Mm -hmm. So I see today, and this has been a result of multi years, Trump is, uh, in my opinion, is a reflection of something that's been going on for some time. It's not, he didn't cause this. He's a manifestation of, of what has happened. The United States demographically is changing and has been changing. And California is a great example of that. You know, we look at the growth of the Hispanic Latino community within our state, rightfully so, um, which ironically enough, we were a part of Mexico for years, right? I mean, it's not like this is new. But as the demographics of the country have changed, uh, there is a group of people that are threatened by that and have felt left out and uh, have, uh, under previous uh, situations, I would say, sort of, you know, mildly resisted or mildly participated. What Trump has done is to give a, a, his own voice to put the loudspeaker to that group of people that are suddenly, you know, they're they're fear based. They're concerned about what's happening to them as this country has changed demographically, politically, even religiously. We know the church uh, attendance has started has declined and been consistently declining over the years. So the country is really changing. And one of the things I try to apply uh, in my social media activities is not to attack the individual, but to speak to the views and the politics. Yeah. I, I, I want to be respectful of the person and the individual. And this is something I've learned in business. I'm a business person, right? So when you get into a meeting, it's like, you know, you don't sit across from the table and tell somebody stupid. You say, look at, I understand what this policy is and what you're saying, but here's the countervailing argument or policy or position supported with data, right? So, and it can be a challenge at times because if you put out a statement and I do tend to get a lot of more personal response than, than practical response, but I try to avoid that wherever possible. I also think that um, because of the circumstances that we're in, we, it's time, we have to speak up. We need to speak up and we need to speak up now. I'm not in a political office. I don't hold policy control and policy management, but social media can be a voice, uh, for the unheard, right? And so I think it's important to do. Did you have any consideration like other people of leaving Twitter after Elon Musk took over? I know that a lot of people sort of felt like, oh, I'm out. I can't be part of this. A lot of conspiracy theories about algorithms and whose stuff shows up and not. And of course, he's charging for the blue check mark and all of that stuff. But did you have any considerations of like, hey, I'm out here now that Elon Musk is running this thing? Well, that's a great question, Josh. The re I've been on Twitter since 2008. So yeah. I have I was a very earlier user, early user of Twitter. The reason I really like Twitter, Twitter is a real-time news channel. I can follow people in the Ukraine and know what's going on in the war in Ukraine almost in real time. And that's just one example. So Twitter has always been a great source for me to gain real-time information about what's going on worldwide. I also, in my role as, a, as a, a digital marketer, use it for that same thing. You know, what's going on at Google? What's happened with, you know, AI, for example, you mm -hmm. know? And it's only been in the last 
two or three years that the political dialogue sort of elevated itself. Uh, and then the presence of Twitter. Now, to the second part of your question is what has happened to Twitter? Mm -hmm. And yes, I will, I will say that since Elon took over Twitter, it has really lost its focus. I really don't get the news element that I used to get. There's just a lot of trash talk. It's regrettable, candidly. Now he announced today, he's hired a new CEO. Yeah. This young woman who's from, uh, I think NBC Universal or whatever, uh, a young woman to take over as CEO. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what becomes. But um, yeah, he's trying to monetize the, the channel. He's trying to monetize the platform because a lot of advertisers left. A lot of the volume went down of users. So what do I do? I got blue birds. I'm going to start charging you $8 a month. Right. Like, come on, you know, is that the best you can do? Most of my technical career has been in e-commerce. You know, it's like, that's, you're just penalizing your user base. Right. So, but I have not left Twitter yet. I also find that the other uh, channel that's so large at large is Facebook, which is really sort of, you know, become less utilitarian significantly over the last couple of years too. I don't find Facebook, which is uh, less utilitarian for myself, uh, more as a, you know, consumer-based sort of uh, channel. Um, but in my role as a digital marketer, I have, I have accounts on practically every social media channel there is, just because I have to be aware, I have to understand what's going on, TikTok, Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Can I find you on TikTok? No, I finally, <laughs> no, I, uh, no, I finally uh, deleted my TikTok account. I just, for me, for what I do, it just had no utilitarian value, but it's huge. It's a huge channel. And you could, I can waste a lot of time swiping, you know, it's just yeah. very addictive. If you're kind of into something, you just keep watching. You know, I had tweeted something. I'm going to ask you about this on air. I had tweeted something about how disappointed I was that CNN, CNN had a town hall forum with Trump. Because I just sort of feel as though it gives him a platform when I believe the media is sort of to blame for Trump's star because they give him so much attention, so much more than any other candidate. And they continue to do so, I guess, because, you know, his ratings are provocative or whatever. But, um, you know, the best thing you can do with Trump is ignore him. And the media here is giving him this. I mean, he's he's facing these charges. I mean, he's he's potentially going to go to prison and here he is getting this platform um and then you had responded that you can't reason with trump voters you have to outvote them so can you talk just a little bit about the trump voters and uh can you change your minds or it's just that's just they're just stuck in how they feel well let me uh, add to your thoughts about the the recent town hall session too first of all the job of journalists among others is to report the news not make the news. Yeah. And I really felt that, especially when they put in an audience, a live audience that were all Trump advocates, right? I mean, come on, what's what, what's the point of that? Secondly, uh, and Josh, you experience it all the time. First statement gains attention. So if somebody says out, comes out and says the earth is flat, then the round earthers have to defend against that. But you can't take the earth is flat comment away. You can't overcome that. So it's almost like, First statement wins, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I also think that 
CNN was thinking maybe Trump has changed. Maybe this we'll see, you know, and we hear this all the time. Oh, he's going to be more presidential. He's going to be reasonable. No, what we saw was the same Donald Trump from 2016, the same, same guy, et cetera. Now for the Trump voters themselves, I'm sensing, and I'd be love to get your feedback on this. I'm starting to sense uh, a growing sense of frustration from the, the a lot of Trump supporters and just tired of the circus, tired of the constant whining and lying. And after a while, it just wears you out. I do believe there's a cultish core of people that, and even he said it himself, I could shoot somebody on what, Fifth Avenue and never go to jail. There's a cultish core of people that you can't reason with, you can't persuade, and they're always going to, they're the Trump forever audience. Okay, fine. I don't try to debate with those people or talk to those people. It's, 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 it's not worth the time or effort. But I am starting to sense, and you saw, I, uh, and I did too, some of the Republicans this week coming out after the town hall and going, you know, this is not, you know, this is not what we want. He bashed Ukraine. He all, Some of the other comments he made. So we're actually starting to see some of the congressional Republicans willing to uh, come out in public yeah. and counter, counter him. So we'll see if that trend grows or continues. Yeah, well, what have you seen? <laughs> I think he's definitely less popular than in 2016. And I think there is a percentage of people who finally are starting to believe, oh, he is a liar. And, and you know, because, I mean, it, we all know he lies all the time, but it didn't matter to a lot of people. There's a percentage. And then with uh, the, the popularity of DeSantis, I think there's an alternative there. And then Tucker Carlson... <clears throat> his tweets saying how much he hates Trump. He kind of gave, I think, a little bit of freedom and he empowered a lot of those conservatives say, well, I hate Trump too, but I always say I like him because you have to. Well, Tucker Carlson feels the same way. Maybe it's okay to move away from him. So I think that definitely he's running out of steam, which was why I was baffled that the CNN would give him that platform. Obviously, Journalists need to talk to everybody and, and be fair, but Trump, we already know everything he's going to say, and That's he's not going to say anything new, and, and there's not a lot. I mean, he's just going to make people angry. So, yeah, but that was an interesting conversation for sure to sort of see all that play out and what's what's happening, you know, and, and now CNN's getting all this blowback from people. Exactly. Like, was it really worth it, CNN, to do that? Exactly. Yeah. It's an interesting data point. I read today that uh, the media numbers came out and Biden's town hall actually had a larger viewership than this than Trump's town hall this last week. Biden's from whenever it was, you know. So yeah. even from an audience reach consideration for CNN, it really didn't pan out for them. And you're right. Uh, you know, here's Anderson Cooper telling us we need to get out of our silo. Uh, I don't know if you read that quote that he, he you know, on the show said, hey, you know, we do this because we want to bring everybody to the table. But, you know, if you don't agree, you should get out of your silo. Silo? Trump's everywhere. He's, we're not in a silo. So I think they miscalculated. I think CNN uh, misunderstood their role. Uh, the new CEO, Licht, I think, has got some issues. And you're right. They did a lot of, rec you know, reverse rowing last night. <laughs> kind, of, kind of 
kind of uh, even MSNBC I watched just lambasted CNN over the whole the whole town hall approach. So so we'll see. It's still early, like you say. Uh, it's what eighteen months away. What do we have? We've got plenty of time. So, but I do think the other consideration is that um, we hear a lot about the age factor. Yeah. You know, Biden will be eighty-two. Trump will be seventy-eight. If you know, come twenty twenty-four. I and, and you know, and I love Diane Feinstein, but come on, you know. And yeah. I'm not a young lad myself, mm -hmm. but I really think that it's would be a us to as a country to really start looking at younger voices. Part of the issue around that, and we haven't talked about this too much, is the emergence of new technologies like artificial intelligence and chat GPT, which I can guarantee you listening to some of these committee testimonies and stuff, these people don't understand the technology at all. And that's the world I live in. Yeah. And it's, it's a little concerning when you think this is going to have a big effect on uh, us as economically, industrially, et cetera, going forward. And the Europeans are, are much further ahead of us uh, on these sort of issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fascinating time for sure. I wanted to learn a little bit about you, uh, your background. I've seen you uh, obviously on HLC. I've seen you on social media. I had talked to Jerry Roberts about oh. having you on the show and you know, he had a memory of you, you know, so I, I know you're, you've been around, you know, so can you tell, you know, how'd you get here? Where'd you grow up? And what was your, you know, your, your marketing now? Have you always been in marketing? Talk to me a little bit about your story. Sure. Well, I'll keep it brief, but um, <laughs> so I grew up in Santa Barbara County, uh, mostly in Santa Maria. I uh, through high school and uh, a little bit of college there and then went away to college in Northern California and then uh, moved to Santa Barbara to go to graduate school at UCSB. Mm -hmm. uh, undergrad and graduate, as I mentioned, was in political science and international relations. Yeah. I ended up working in Santa Barbara for a couple of years at uh, two car companies that here, Clinet Coach Works. Some of your viewers may remember uh, this, that business and another car business. And then moved to San Francisco uh, as a young, broke, single man and ended up through a series of coincidences getting involved in the internet industry at its very very earliest uh, iteration mm. at one point i first started working for what was a santa barbara company but up in the bay area advanced computer communications which was a bridge router company hardware mm. for networks the first sort of tcp ip protocol uh, product and then eventually ended up uh, at america online or aol very very early as head of marketing and VP of business development at AOL. Okay. Uh, all this is in San Francisco and then went on to a startup and helped uh, a travel company uh, go public and become, and this is the e-commerce side of my experience, uh, working with them in San Francisco, uh, taking the company public and growing it. And then uh, was recruited away from that to Office Depot of all places. And Office Depot hired me to build out their internet presence. So I built their website, I hired the team and took that as a P&L uh, and, and launched what at one point we were third largest e-com website on the internet. I think Amazon was still ahead of us a little bit, et cetera, mm -hmm. for Office Depot and uh, built that business out for them. And then in 2000, I uh, quit work and moved back to Santa Barbara and have worked uh, at a local advertising agency, head of digital marketing for client work, 
there with a number of clients locally. And then um, more recently, as you mentioned at the opening, I've uh, been working with Vices here in Santa Barbara, mm -hmm. uh, doing digital uh, marketing and support for Vices and their various clients, uh, both here in California and nationally. So you're, you're, you've done a lot in the tech industry and you kind of been at the right place at the right time, it sounds like, and been able to uh, be uh, impactful in that in that circle, in that space. I should get you to help me market my podcast. You know, yeah. maybe. Just as, as a data point, how early it was in the Internet. So Visa, the credit card company, hired my team, me and my team to build their first website. And we presented to the CEO at the time. And he argued, he said, why would we build a website? There's only 5 million people on the internet. We really don't care. <laughs> but he was right at the time. There were yeah. only 5 million users of the internet at the time. So very, very early. Obviously, we persuaded him that he needed a website. So I built their first website and then did actually one of the very first online digital advertising programs, which happened to be for Visa at the time. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so let me go back then to the chat GPT thing, because you've been kind of at the frontier of a lot of these really key moments in Internet history. And it sounds like you'll be able to watch these people talk and they don't really know the power of AI and what how this is going to disrupt everything. Uh, what is your view on on chat GPT and what what that means for essentially, you know, all sectors of our our economy and and, and, and lifestyle of. What's your early take on this? So I think uh, AI, as we know it today and forecast on it, will be as revolutionary as the internet was, or mm -hmm. even more so. I mean, it's hard for us to look back and think of a time, especially for younger pe people, when the internet wasn't available to us, right? I mean, we take it for granted and its, its ability to scale and what it does for us and how it has driven technology. AI is going to be as revolutionary or more so. Now, what do we do about it? And I think even with the internet, in the early days of the internet, we really opposed commercialization of the internet. We didn't want advertising on the web. We didn't. We really didn't want that. It was about education, sharing, messaging, file serving. It wasn't about trying to make money off of this platform. Obviously that happened and happened on a massive scale, but that wasn't the original intent. I had uh, I met with the leaders of Yahoo in their very earliest days, and they said, we're on a mission to change the world. And it had nothing to do with trying to make money. But mm. AI is it represents that sort of revolutionary, uh, uh, expansive change for us. The question really is, is we don't understand fully, even the developers of AI don't really understand how it works fully. When it starts writing its own code, we don't know how, how does it do that? We don't know today and what the implications for that are huge today we use it mostly in a chat like environment or a research environment students are writing their you know chat gpt write me a paper on the history of plants or something you know um that's just starting to present itself but it has the potential to radically change work types of work the economy and ultimately how we live our lives. And I, um, as I've watched social media is a great probably precursor example to that. What social media has become to us as a sec as a social component of, of our lives, right? Not all good, not all good stuff, seriously. 
And I think artificial intelligence, something we need to seriously, seriously see how we can uh, manage its growth effectively. And that yeah. gets back to the earlier point about, is this something we legislate? I don't know, because the legislators don't understand the technology. So right. that's, that's, that's the real quandary right there. Yeah, it's so uh, it's happening so fast, and nobody really understands anything. And everyone acts like they understand it, but they really don't. Yeah. And by that time, it's sort of too late, you know. And so, um, you know, we see that example with with the internet, and um, you know, just rapidly changing. But AI, Chat GPT, it feels like what is happening now feels a lot like when the internet was first taking off, moving from you know, AOL and Netscape Navigator and all these yeah. really small things. And then the iPhone in 2005, kind of like nobody knew like that's everyone was going to be like this rest of their lives. And so I feel like that's also where we're at right now with this period. So I would add to that the pace of change is so accelerated now than it was when the Internet first started developing. Because you're right. You said iPhones in 2005. AOL 1993, 1994, Netscape 95, you know, and then that slowly came about. Uh, so with AI, I think the pace of change oh. is much faster even than anything before. Great. Well, Keith Butler, I really appreciate you taking time. It's good to talk to you, watching you at these HLC meetings and quoting you is one way to know you, uh, but and also your social media presence. But this conversation has been really cool and really uh, enlightening. So I appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you and talking to you and quoting you and seeing, you know, all your ideas come forward going forward. I appreciate it, Josh. I'll try to throw out some outrageous comments. <laughs> Anytime you say monstrosity, you can count on me. You're there. Huh? Okay. I'll count <laughs> you on it. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks. Have a good day. Take care. You too. Take care.